Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbin Greek, UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Whatever your needs, Malbin Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC16, 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malbin Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. Hello there, sorry to interrupt. My name's Dr Neil Buttery and I'm host of the British Food History Podcast, a podcast that you, as a fan of The Delicious Legacy, might be interested in. I explore British food and its history in all its glory, with interviews with special guests, recipes, reenactments, and tracking down forgotten recipes and hyper-regional specialities. Previous topics include medieval eels, 18th century dining, curry, London street food sellers, breakfast, and the good old Yorkshire pudding. Search for the British Food History Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the delicious legacy. Cheers. Hello. This is the Delicious Legacy Podcast. An archaeogastronomical adventure through the ages. Welcome back to another episode with me, Thomas Dinas. And today we're going to travel again to medieval Spain, to the Moorish kingdoms of Al-Andalus, that almost paradisiacal place in uh, an otherwise dark continent. The continent of Europe, of course, we're talking about, and this is the Middle Ages. So many myths and misconceptions, of course, on that uh, story. The truth is a lot more complicated, obviously, always. In reality, the Al-Andalus, the medieval Moorish Arab kingdoms of um, Spain, yes, they were rich and relatively powerful, and there was an abundance and a flourishing of culture and of knowledge and of new techniques technological innovations coming through the Arab world, through the Middle East, all the way to Europe, via, of course, the Arabs, and, of course, the locals who lived there for and worked and and exchanged ideas with the Arabs, but also the Jews and other populations of uh, immigrants and migrants across uh, North Africa and Europe and Spain. In a political sense, 
from uh, roughly the beginning of the 8th century until the very end of the um, Middle Ages, which kind of coincides with uh, the travels in the New World. So 1492 is kind of the period that um, the Muslims had uh, in control some part of uh, Spain. Um, this was proven to be another challenging um, epic episode about a whole civilization culture that um, lasted for many centuries, in a sense, something like six or seven hundred years of flourishing of the medieval uh, Moorish kingdoms. So it proved quite challenging and difficult to me to try and condense so much information and so many ideas and, um, and subjects to this episode. And obviously I want to talk about food and the recipes and uh, the ingredients of medieval Spain. Because obviously a lot of the elements of modern or new Spanish cuisine has as a foundation the Arabs, what the Arabs brought from the Middle East with the pomegranate and the spices and the saffron, spices like cumin for example, and coriander, and, and how all these things travelled to the New World, to Americas, to, and how these things then got intertwined with the local um, Mexican and South American cuisines. It's almost like we can trace these steps backwards to the Arabs and the Persians uh, in the beginning of um, the 7th century. Which, yeah, for me it's very fascinating and very complex subject and um, I'll try and talk as much as I can about uh, recipes from uh, medieval Spain and ingredients. But firstly, I want to provide a bit of a context on how these things um, started and why. Why did um, the Arab um, caliphs and emirs um, reached all the way to Spain and uh, had a whole... Um, new culture, a whole new culture springing up and flourishing for so many centuries there. So sit back, relax and enjoy and let's start our story from uh, as far as we can uh, go back. Extravagance bred jealousy and discontent. The pretense of equality amongst the citizens but with full rights only to full-blooded Arabs and the heavy taxation uh, the lower classes burdened with made things worse. The seething anger of the culturally rich Sogdian, Persian, Yemeni traders struck the caliphs with the speed of an extremely sharp shaif. One fateful day, around 750 AD, an entourage of imposing dissidents from Central Asia arrived in the imperial palace of Damascus to share a meal with the caliph's inner circle and, ostensibly, to put aside their differences. In the end, not a single Banu Umayya adult left that dinner table alive. Abdul Rahman was the only mature male descendant of the dynasty that somehow escaped from the palace grounds with a few guards. The Rusafa palace, the center of the Umayyad Caliphate, was sacked and burned to the ground. The Abbasids were merciless with all the Umayyads that they found. 
even when they declared amnesty for the members of the Umayyad family, eight gathered to receive pardons and all were murdered. All of them aside of the hero of our story, of course. As we've seen, Abd al-Rahman made a miraculous escape to the river Euphrates and the fugitive's route, together with a small part of his family from Damascus, was made with a small inner circle which included his brother Yahya, his four-year-old son Suleiman and some of his sisters as well as his Greek Moala, which is a freedman or client called Bedr. From Damascus, we pick up his story into the river Euphrates, where his dramatic and epic tale with a narrow escape after narrow escape took him all the way to Spain and a total of five to six years to reach. Abbasid agents closed in on Abdel Rahman and his family while they were hiding in a small village by the mighty river. He left his young son and with his sisters and fled with Yahya. Accounts vary, but Bedr likely escaped with Abdel Rahman. On the way south, Abbasid horsemen again caught up with the trio. Abdel Rahman and his companions then threw themselves into the river Euphrates. The horsemen urged them to return, promising them no harm would come to them. And Yahya, perhaps for fear of drowning, turned back. The 17th century historian, Ahmed Muhammad al-Makari, poignantly described Abd al-Rahman's reaction as he implored Yahya to keep going. Oh brother, come to me, come to me. But Yahya returned to the near shore and was quickly dispatched by the horsemen. They cut off his head and left his body to rot. Al-Makari quotes earlier historians reporting that Abd rahman was so overcome with fear that from the far shore he ran until exhaustion overcame him. He and Bedr were left alone to face the unknown struggle. They continued south through Palestine, the Sinai, and then into Egypt. Abd rahman had to keep a low profile as he travelled. It is widely assumed he tended to go at least as far as northwest Africa, Maghreb, the land of his mother, which had been partly conquered by the Umayyad predecessors. The journey across Egypt would prove perilous. They flew to Ifiqiya and took refuge at the camp of an Afza Berber chieftain, friendly to their plight. They were chased from there and fled westwards and finally, in 755, Abd al-Rahman and Bedr reached modern-day Morocco and near Ceutam, the final objective, to reach Al-Andalus, was within a few miles across the sea. However, following the Berber revolt of the 740s, the province was in crisis, with the Muslim community torn by troubled dissensions among Arabs. Abdul Rahman wasn't sure if he would be welcomed. At that moment, the nominal ruler of Al-Andalus was Emir Yusuf ibn Abdul Rahman al-Fikhri, a member of the Fikhri family and a favorite of the old Arab settlers, mostly of South Arabian or Yemeni tribal stock. And the nominal ruler of Al-Andalus, he was locked with a contest with his vizier, the son-in-law, Al-Sumail ibn Hatim al-Kilabi, the head of the so-called Syrians, the Samiyun, drawn from the military regiments of Syria, mostly of North Arabian Qaysid tribes, who arrived in 742. But news of our hero's arrival, of the prince's arrival spread like wildfire throughout the peninsula. In 756, in a crucial battle, in the banks of the river Gualdakivir, just outside Cordoba, he defeated the army of Al-Fihri and Al-Sumail with Yemeni support. Abd al-Rahman triumphantly marched into the capital Cordoba, 
Later, and after another beat from uh, Alfie Hrif of Power, and after a series of small fights, managed to defeat old Alfie Hrif's army. Alfie Hrif himself managed to escape to the former Visigoth capital of Toledo, in central Al-Andalus. Once there, he was promptly killed. His head was sent to Cordoba, where Abd al-Rahman had it nailed to a bridge. With this act, al-Rahman I was able to forge a new Umayyad dynasty. His legacy started a new chapter for the dynasty, ensuring the survival and culminating in the new Caliphate of Cordoba by his descendants. And this is how our story begins. This is where all started. He ensured roadways were begun, aqueducts were constructed or improved, and that a new mosque was well founded in his capital at Cordoba. Construction on what would be, in time, the world-famous Great Mosque of Cordoba was started around the year 786 AD. His descendants will go on to rule for nearly 200 years and build cities, garden palaces and mosques of such opulence that Andalusia could have been considered a paradise on earth, bringing innovations from east to west with them and constructing, as we said, aqueducts, fountains and waterworks to irrigate the dry, sparsely uh, rained southern Spain. Fruit and vegetables and spices all traveled west and became staples for the cuisine in Europe for the past thousand years. Among them, pomegranate, oranges, lemons, roses and rose water, almonds, saffron, coriander, cinnamon, anisids, aubergines, rice, and a myriad of pickled dishes. Abd al-Rahman III, one of the descendants of uh, our hero, built Medina Azahara, a fortified palace city on the western outskirts of Cordoba, declaring himself a caliph, and the dignity of his new title required the establishment of a new city, a symbol of his power, imitating other eastern caliphates. According to historical Arabic sources, the three levels of the city had distinct functions. The uppermost level housed the private palaces of the caliph and his closest associates. The middle terrace housed the buildings of the state administration and the residence of high officials, and the much larger lower level was for the common people and the army. In the magnificent Medina Zahara, you would find schools, libraries, workshops, stables, weapon factories, pavilions and royal barracks. Cypresses and palm trees bloomed amidst the fruitful landscape, and wild animals lived in a zoo while exotic birds were kept in an aviary. Splendid features such as lavish gardens, orchards, marble fountains, large fish ponds, pools, courtyards and terraces adorned the city. It is recorded that over 4,000 columns were built from white, pink and green marble and jasper shipped from the Phoenician city of Carthage. The palaces were furnished with silks, tapestries and various luxury objects. Many objects produced in the caliph's official workshops were given as gifts and have made their way into the collection of museums and Christian cathedrals. Among the wonders reported by historical chronicles about the palaces, Al-Makari described a domed hall in the palace which contained a pool of liquid mercury which reflected light and could be stirred to create dazzling ripples of light, although the location of this hall has not been found by the modern archaeologists yet anyway. Ibn Razin al-Turjibi was a 13th century Muslim Andalusian scholar who wrote one of the few cookbooks that survived from that era and consequently one of the oldest recipe books from uh, medieval Europe. Al-Turjibi was born in 1227 to a wealthy family of scholars living in Murcia. 
the Christian reconquest of Spain led many Muslim families to flee, including uh, Al-Tajibi's family. In 1247, the family ended up in Behaya, now Algeria. By 1259, Al-Tajibi was relocated to Tunis. While apparently he wrote many books, only his cookbook, which uh, in English translates as Best of the Delectable Foods and Dishes from Al-Andalus and Al-Mahrib, survives. The cookbook was composed in Tunis around 1260 AD. So the recipes on the book, they are from Al-Andalus heritage, where the dishes had Muslim, Christian and Jewish influences. And until 2018, it was thought that there was no complete copy of the book remaining, until an accidental discovery at the British Library was made. And the food historian Nawal Nasrallah uh, realized the significance of the finding and she translated the copy uh, of the book into English. I'll put um, some links in my notes about uh, Nasrallah, she's an amazing um, Middle Eastern Iraqi historian, food historian. So the impact um, of the Arabs in Iberia was huge. It cannot be overstated. There was significant influences in agriculture, including the restoration of many Roman aqueducts, as well as irrigation channels, as well as the introduction of new technologies, such as the Quanats or water channels, which originated from Persia, and the Sakya, which is animal-powered irrigation water wheels. In Spain and Sicily, they introduced crops and foodstuffs from Mesopotamia and Persia, and India, of course. And um, things like rice and sugarcane also became really... Uh, they expanded their range of um, cultivation. Muslim scientists in Al-Andalus and elsewhere contributed written knowledge on, on agriculture, including food production methods, planting techniques, grafting techniques for plants and trees, new irrigation systems, land granting schemes, agricultural calendar, planting rotation, various soil types and treatment, land reclamation methods, and enhancement of botany starting it as a science. There are many names among the, the, the scholars like Ibn Basal, Ibn al-Awam, Abu al-Qasim Muhammad bin Ali, Abu Bakr, Ibn Wasiyah, Abu Labas al-Nabati, and many, many others. Many European scholars um, comment that uh, the agricultural system of, of, of uh, Andalusian Spain was uh, the most complex, the most scientific, the most perfect ever devised by the ingenuity of man. The early stages of uh, the Arab um, migration into the Iberian Peninsula seem uh, strictly related to the appearance of irrigated agricultural terrace systems one of the most emblematic anthropogenic trademarks in the West Mediterranean landscape. Andalusian people selected the most convenient areas to convert the originally poor soils into soils that could support intensive cultivation. In this way, they set the foundation of establishing some of the long-lasting agricultural strategies in southern Europe. As a result, the largest irrigated terrace systems presently in use within the Iberia Peninsula are still among the most productive in those semi-arid areas. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Building procedures of irrigated terraces is a complex matter. The Andalusian terrace building technique used implies a quick and intense transformation of the pre-existing environment. The terrain was uh, cleared of vegetation by burning, and local soils were used to fill the terraces, possibly to invert the original soil horizons. Nevertheless, the construction of broad terraces was intended to gain as much cultivable space as possible, but it involves bringing to the terrace location considerable volumes of soil and sediment to build them. The Muslim contributions to the development of Spanish agriculture included the introduction of new crops, more intensive use of irrigation, soil management and scholarly efforts in farming innovation. The Andalusian agronomic school of the 10th to the 15th century was very innovative for its time and helped in developing the agricultural sector in all the neighboring countries. Another cookbook of uh, Al-Andalus is the book of cooking in Maghreb and Al-Andalus in the era of Al-Muhad, which is written by an unknown author, and that was compiled by a scribe in the 1400s. Tantalizingly, the scribe's name uh, appeared in the first page of the text, but the first page has not survived through the ages. His work contains recipes copied from a number of older works, some of them from the 1200s, and some surviving and some not surviving independently today. So we have some of them in different sources as well. We should think of this uh, cookbook as a notebook, as a recipe notebook from a busy estate kitchen. So this cookbook borrows directly from several well-known cookbooks of the era and of the, of the known medieval Arab world as well. So for example, the recipes from um, al-Baghdadi, who compiled the... Uh, uh, the Kitab al-Tabih, or the Book of the Dishes, a famous Baghdadi book written um, in 1236. Some recipes come from cookbooks by the gastronome Abu Ishaq Ibrahim ibn al-Mati, which was uh, the half-brother of the Caliph Harun al-Rashid. Uh, we're talking about late 
8th century, so 300 years or so before this cookbook. Some other recipes come from cookbooks by authors unknown to us today. It's interesting to think that many of the dishes uh, reported in this 13th century cookbook uh, are still enjoyed by families in Andalusia, Sicily, Sardinia and all the territories that formerly belonged to the Moorish uh, kings and monarchs, especially in Morocco. I think there are some very similar recipes that uh, survived through the ages. The recipes uh, for bread, sausages, meat patties and so on are very common. Of course, the main thread between those recipes is that none of them is made with pork. But you'll find uh, goat, lamb and mutton recipes, along with lots of chicken, egg, uh, aubergines, fish recipes, and as well as Italian frittatas and fresh and dried pasta and um, similar recipes with the calzone. Uh, the number one uh, recipes in a category um, are for sweets, basically. And the sweet recipes can be subdivided in pastries, in cookies, in caddies, in cakes, in sweetbreads, and puddings, like custard-type uh, puddings. Examples of recipes in this book contain marzipan candies and marzipan cookies and pastries, puff pastry delicacies, Spanish turon and pulvorones and churros, Italian torone nougat and panettone and cannoli, custards, puddings, rice pudding, fritters, samosas, taffy and uh, gumdrops. A recipe for rachpintilla. This with dried buttermilk, made by Nazif for Al-Muqtadiri. And this recipe comes from, uh, originally from uh, Al-Baghdadi book from uh, modern day Iraq. Cut meat into medium-sized pieces, clean it and put it in a pot along with soaked bruised chickpeas, olive oil, salt and, and a piece of galangal. Bring the pot to a boil and add to it juice of onion, leek, coriander and roux. Dissolve dried buttermilk, they call it rachpin, in some liquid and add it to the pot with whole leaves of watercress. So this is the style of recipes, how they were written. Again, we don't have much of, uh, in terms of um, quantities of ingredients. So I guess how we do it now would be like cut the meat into medium-sized pieces and um, like chicken, for example, if you want chicken, uh, Put it into a pot with water and start boiling it. And then add some ground spices, such as coriander and the black pepper and ginger, or galangal if you if you have some. And add uh, walnuts and, and um, cinnamon or cassia. And let it uh, cook, bubbling and simmering for about uh, 15 to 20 minutes. It seems the asparagus was um, quite popular in Al-Andalus where it was eaten with olive oil and vinegar, or as an ingredient in stews. The asparagus would also be served with hard-boiled eggs or wrapped with meat. The vegetable was introduced into the Iberian Peninsula in the 9th century by the most famous exile from the East, the singer and aesthete Ziriab. In Andalusian and North African Arabic, it was known as asfarage, a word derived from its Latin name asparagus. In the medical literature, asparagus was identified as a powerful aphrodisiac, as well as being a diuretic, and useful against bowel blockages, sciatica and colitis. When it was cooked in syrup, it was good for bites, but a decoction of asparagus is lethal to dogs. I want to focus a little bit now 
on this um, Almohad cookbook uh, from Andalusia with these um, Maghreb Al-Andalusian recipes from medieval Spain and uh, North Africa. And I want to check some recipes, but also uh, some ingredients and some techniques and um, kitchen implements of the era. So the book states that a very important term tool to have in the kitchen is a mortar and a mortar made of uh, white marble or f- of a hardwood such as chestnut, terebinth, olive, ash, boxwood or jujube and prepared for pounding things uh, that should be by no means be pounded in copper. So things like salt, garlic, coriander, onion, mustard, mint, uh, citron leaves and other plants and greens and fruits like apples, quince and pomegranate and meat and fat, and almonds, stuffings for kak, which it's biscuits and cookies, and bread foods, and anything else that's moist or fatty. Above all, if left in copper until it turns green, is altered and takes on a bad taste. Of this hardwood are the spoons and ladles, and the board on which meat is cut, and the board on which kak and bread foods are rolled out. It should be smooth and extremely polished, and likewise the utensil, which makes the mirkas, the sausages, is made, should be white glass, glassy ceramic or hardwood. Because if it's copper, then holes through which the ground sausage meat passes turn green, and that mixes with the meat and it alters. And that means, obviously, that the, the taste of the food alters and it turns bad. And the book also tells us about um, how the dishes should be ordered and served, and which uh, dishes are fitting to be the first and which to be the last. So we have a kind of an order of dishes, and that's a succession of seven dishes and the order in which they're eaten. So first dish to be presented is a feminine one, such as bakliya, mukara, and the various kinds of tafayas, which are stews. Or after this, the dish jimli. Then muthalat, which meat cooked with vegetables, vinegar and saffron. Then the dish of muri, a decision with uh, the sauce muri, which is something like the... Um, a fermented sauce like soy or something like the fish sauce of the ancients. Then mukhalal, a vinegar dish. Then muasal, a honey dish, a sweet. Then fartun, a cake. And then another muasal, another sweet. So many of the great figures and their companions order that the separate dishes be placed on each table before the diners, one after the other. And this is more beautiful than putting an uneaten mound all on the table. And it's more elegant, better bread and modern. This has been the practice of the people of Al-Andalus and the West, of the rulers, great figures and men of merit, from the days of Umar b. Abd al-Aziz and the Banu Umayyah to the present. This is a passage from the book, of course, talking about why, the reasoning about why they should be presented as such, the dishes. So the book has plenty of recipes, and some of the most interesting ones I'll present here. It's one of syrup of fresh roses, which is... Um, gives us the instructions of taking one rattle, which is 468 grams of fresh roses. After removing the dead from them and cover them with just boiled water for a day and a night until the water cools and the roses fall apart in the water. Filter it and take the clean part of it and add to a rattle of sugar. Cook all this until it takes the form of a syrup. <clears throat> and then gives us instructions on when to use that too. So in terms of, uh, as a medicine, uh, drink um, seven teaspoons of this with two of hot water. Its benefits are at the onset of dropsy uh, and fortifies the stomach and the liver and the other internal organs. 
and lightens the constitution. There's a syrup of pomegranates, which again gives us the instruction of taking one rattle of sour pomegranates and another of sweet pomegranates, and add the juice to two rattles of sugar. Cook all this until it takes the consistency of syrup. Keep until needed. Its benefits, it is useful for fevers and cuts the thirst. It benefits bilious fevers and lightens the body gently. Some of the most interesting recipes for um, dough and bread is uh, the one of making isfunge. Take some molina and sift it, and take the flour and put it in a dish. Take water and sprinkle it lightly on the semolina. Then knead it into a dough and gather it all up and cover it with a second dish, leaving it until it sweats. Then uncover it and knead it until it becomes soft. Throw oil in it and knead it and put in leavening and eggs. Throw in about five eggs and then knead the dough with the eggs. Then put it in a new pot after greasing it with oil and leave it until it rises. Uh, from the recipes with uh, meat, there's a recipe for roast ram breast. Pound a rattle of meat in a stone mortar and add the same amount of cut up fat, a little onion, and both fresh coriander and coriander seeds and cheese, soft fresh cheese and almonds, a large handful of shelled and powdered walnuts and some muri to moderate its taste. Add to it Chinese cinnamon, which is the cassia, I believe, pepper, ginger. Pound all this with the meat until it's mixed and knead until it's uniform. Then take a breast of plum rum and cleave it between the ribs and the meat and fill it with the stuffing. Then sew it up with cut or palm leaves and smear the breast with oil and sprinkle it with ground starch. Hang it in a tanur with a clay oven and shut it, i.e. shut the oven to roast the meat. When it is ready, take it out and present it. It is a good roast. Another interesting dish is safar jalgia, a dish made with quinces and lamb or veal. This is a good food for the feverish. It excites the appetite, strengthens the stomach and prevents stomach vapors from rising to the head. Take the flesh of a young fat lamb or calf and cut it in small pieces. Put it in a pot with salt, pepper, coriander seed, saffron, oil and a little water. Put it on a low fire until the meat is done. Then take as much as you need of cleaned peeled quince, cut into fourths, and sharp vinegar, juice of unripe grapes or of pressed quince and cook this with the meat for a while and use. If you wish, cover with eggs, beaten eggs, cooked to set over the top of the dish, and it comes out like mutthalath. To fajilla, a dish made with apples, lamb or veal or chicken and squab. Take meat as mentioned in the recipe of safarjaliya and prepare the same way. Take the flesh of a young fat lamb or calf and cut it in small pieces. Put it in a pot with salt, pepper, coriander seed, saffron oil and a little water. Put it on a low fire until the meat is done. Then add tart apples, peeled and cleaned, as many as needed, cut in fourths. Cook this with the meat, and when you take it to the hearthstone, put a little sugar and cut with musk and camphor, dissolved in good rose water. The acidity is most efficacious in lightening and strengthening the heart, that it can be made with the flesh of birds, such as fat hens or young squabs of the domestic dove, or stock dove, and then it will be finer and better. A little um, note here for Muri. Um, a lot of the 13th century Islamic recipes frequently contain an ingredient called Muri. It is one of a group of condiments that were popular in early Islamic cooking, but vanished later on, sometime after the 14th century. Many of those condiments resembled either, as I said, soy sauce or fish sauce. 
and were used to enhance flavors. There are recipes in Al-Baghdadi's cookbook that require 40 days of work, but in the end, the result seems to taste much like a soy sauce, dark and um, strong and salty. So, obviously, if you want to create one of the recipes above that has buri, uh, then you can use soy sauce or a fish sauce, to be honest. One of the recipes from Al-Baghdadi mentions cinnamon and saffron and other herbs are added to the resulting condiment. Again, so you can add this in the soy sauce too. And um, and yeah, you can, you can use soy sauce. Al-Baghdadi gives this recipe for Muri. Take five rattles, each of penny royal and flour. Make the flour into good dough with water without leaven or salt. Bake and leave until dry. Then grind up fine with a penny royal. Knead into a log with a third the quality of salt and put out into the sun for 40 days in the heat of the summer, kneading every day at dawn and evening and sprinkling with water. When black, put into conserving jars, cover with an equal quantity of water, stirring morning and evening, then strain into the first muri. Add cinnamon, saffron and some aromatic herbs. And uh, finally a recipe for something sweet, a recipe for tarfist, saffron honey bread pudding. This is a dish of the people of Fez. Knead the finest white flour or semolina with water and make flatbreads. Cook them in a tanur, which is a clay oven, or in the bread oven, over a moderate fire, then crumble them small. Take skimmed honey, I guess um, honey was used to be heated and then remove the scum, which is something unnecessary for modern honey, and dilute it with an equal amount of fresh water and throw in as much saffron as will color the crumbs to the desired tint. Then throw in these crumbs and stir it until it takes body like a paste and continue stirring. When it hardens, sprinkle it with plenty of split almonds and stir it until it's mixed. Put it on a serving dish and form the dough as a ring. Make a hole in the middle and fill it with melted aromatic clarified butter or fresh butter. Sprinkle it with sugar, cinnamon, spikenard, cloves and taffy pieces uh, or candied sugar and present it. The year was 936 when Abd al-Rahman III, who declared himself the Caliph of Cordoba, began the construction of the magnificent Islamic city five miles west of Cordoba, the one we call Medina al-Zahara. Of course, like uh, all good stories, this one uh, has it that uh, it was named after the Caliph's uh, favorite concubine from Granada called Zahra. And of course, according to the legend, Zahra eventually grew more despondent despite all the wealth that surrounded her and the luxuries offered. So when the caliph asked her what would be done to restore her happiness, Zahra replied that she longed to see the snow of Sierra Nevada mountains of her home in Granada. Not to want to back down from a challenge, no matter how daunting, Abd al-Rahman III ordered rows and rows of almond trees to be planted close to each other at the gardens of of the Medina. When the white flowers of the almond trees blossomed in the springtime, it created the impression of falling snow, and Zahra cried no more. However, of course, there's another explanation, more uh, logical, that Zahra is the Arabic term for brilliance or shine, and it's generally accepted that uh, Medina al-Zahara was named for its brilliance. Chronicles tell of visitors traveling from afar to marvel at the richness and opulence of the palatial city. Abd al-Rahman III spared no expense in its glorious construction, hiring the best architects and artisans from all over the world, incorporating materials such as gold, ivory, precious stones and marble. It took 
10,000 men, 25 years, to build the Shining City. It is constructed in a location of a great natural beauty on the lowest foothills of Sierra Morena Mountains. Of course, all good things don't last forever, and the power of the Caliphate began to decline towards the late 10th century due to internal struggles within and by the year 1010, Berber troops sacked and burned Medina Zahara to the ground. During the following centuries, the ruins of this glorious city were constantly pillaged and plundered for construction of buildings, not only from locals, but from plunderers from as far away as Marrakesh. Uh, by the 15th century, the vestiges of this forgotten city became known to locals as Cordoba la Vieja, and it was not until 1911 that um, the remains were excavated. Of course, uh, with all this opulence and uh, extravagance and all the achievements of uh, the Umayyad Caliphate, we cannot not have a single figure that is the genius behind many things, and that was uh, Ziriyab, and apparently this uh, amazing polymath musical genius was also the influence of the cuisine of Arab Spain. His significance and his influence in the cuisine of, of medieval Arab Spain uh, is uh, huge, apparently. This man known as Iriyab, which means the blackbird, got his name because he sang beautifully. He performed and taught music in Cordoba under the patronage of the Umayyad Emir uh, Abdul Rahman II. The musician became widely known as an arbiter of style, and he introduced revolutionary changes in music, dining, fashion, grooming, hairstyles, cosmetics, and other aspects of the court life. Many of his innovations spread to other social classes and communities, and eventually throughout Western Europe. In the 9th century, Cordoba was the capital and cultural center of the Western uh, Arab civilization, as we can call it. And everything that was happening in Cordoba all the fads and the fashion and the creations were widely emulated uh, around uh, and spread around the um, empire. Abd al-Rahman II was impressed by Ziriyab's talents and showered him with gifts and privileges, general salary, villas in the country, special bonuses. It is said when Abd al-Rahman first heard Ziriyab sing, he was so captivated by his voice and his style of playing that he no longer listened to any other singer. Ziriyab was much more than a musician. He was a trendsetter in fashion, an advocate of personal hygiene. Allegedly, he introduced toothpaste, deodorants, hair shampoo and perfumes. And also, of course, he was a connoisseur of fine food. Ziriyab looked on eating as a whole aesthetic, harmonious experience, a source of pleasure to all the senses and attended by rules of etiquette and table manners. He brought with him recipes from Baghdad and created innovative dishes of his own. One of these dishes, consisting of meatballs and small triangular pieces of dough fried in coriander oil, came to be known as uh, Ziriyab's fried dish, Takliat Ziriyab. He is also credited with introducing asparagus, which until then was looked upon as a weed. To Ziriyab, the presentation of food was an essential part of the aesthetic experience. Fine food was served on tables covered with exquisitely worked leather, and heavy gold or silver goblets for drink were replaced by delicate glassware, which glinted and exposed the color of its contents. So for this, Ziriyab saw to it that a glass factory was built in Cordoba. But perhaps Ziriyab's allegedly most revolutionary contribution to gastronomy 
was his rejection of food piled on, on one plate, in favor of separate dishes, beginning with soup, followed by fish or meat and ending with fruit, sweet desserts and different nuts. It was an innovation unknown even to the sophisticated Baghdad. It eventually spread to the rest of Europe and is the forerunner of our modern multi-course meals. His contribution to the Western culture is still not widely recognized. Of course, we also don't know if all these things are part of a myth of the man rather than actual facts and how much things also change uh, through the ages and influence by many, many people rather than just made by one person. But uh, increasingly in the Islamic world, his uh, fame has been recognized anyway. There are restaurants with his name in Casablanca, for example, and so on. Somebody called him uh, the Martha Stewart of medieval Europe. Thanks for your support by listening to this podcast and, of course, by sharing it with friends and family. If you want to help me create even more episodes, uh, more often, and also uh, uh, some video recipes for you, please go to Patreon and type the Delicious Legacy Podcast, where you can pledge your support from $3 a month. There, you can get the episodes ad-free and early, and of course, all the other writings, recipes, and so on that I have there. In addition, of course, you get all the previous episodes ad-free and also with extra content because I've got, um, on each episode, I've got extra content from my Patreon backers. So not only that, but you get extra material from all the previous episodes. Thanks for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. See you soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.